following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. When my wife, Kim, was in labor with our very first child, Caleb, uh, the doctors found that when her water broke, Caleb had meconium in, in the uterus. And uh, that's just a fancy way of saying he had, there was poop in the womb. And uh, he gave me permission to share this. But this is something that happens, I think. It's not too untyp- atypical, but sometimes the stress that the baby experiences uh, in the womb during birth can cause this. And so upon discovering this, the quiet excitement of delivering our first child suddenly became this mad frenzy, right, with neonatologists being paged, doctors and nurses were just frantically rushing around the room, setting up equipment, uh, and they wanted to try to, as soon as possible, get all the waste vacuumed out of Caleb's nose and mouth to prevent him from being aspirated into his lungs. And he ended up being fine. Uh, it was quite a scare for me as a first-time dad. Uh, even with modern medicine and, and, you know, top medical care, it dawned on me how vulnerable my son was as a little infant coming into this world. And I remember wishing at that moment that I had more power to help him. But I could only stand there just feeling utterly powerless. When I think about Jesus being born into the world as a baby, it's amazing to me to think that God did have that power. He had the ability to grant his son privilege and power, but instead he allowed his son to assume all of the frailties of a human baby. With his first bed being really a feeding trough for farm animals. Very inauspicious beginning. If I was starting a new religion, I would not have written the story that way. Right? What kind of father would actually choose to do this to his son? And I think it begs the question, you know, if God had to send his son to earth, why not just send him here as a full-grown adult male, right? In some cool, like, Tesla-looking spaceship and just skip the entire awkward process of human development, right? If God could orchestrate a virgin birth, surely it would have been nothing to just send Jesus here as a tall, dark, and handsome man like Saul, or, you know, with the flowing mane of hair and the physique of Samson. Maybe if he looked like a Greek god, more people would have followed Jesus. What was God thinking? The fact that Jesus was born a child was a stumbling block for, for some people. You know, the Gospels tells us that many people from his hometown of Nazareth who watched him grow up as a little boy couldn't get past that image of him as a child. They couldn't accept the claims that Jesus was making about himself. And in Matthew 13, 55 through 57, it says, they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. To them, this man was clearly fully human, right? How could he claim to be fully God? This is what offended them, I think. 
And Christian theologians, they call this, this union of being fully human and fully God, the, the hypostatic union, which teaches that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, and that there is no mixture or dilution of either nature, and that he is one united person forever. Forever. He is not half God and half man. He did not assume some characteristics of humanity and forego others. He didn't empty himself of any portion of his divinity when he came to earth. The Bible tells us that he was born of a virgin, so we know he was fully human, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so we know he was fully God. And this is why the prophet Isaiah says, For unto us a child was born, that is, human origin, to us a son is given, that is, the eternal God. And for the last couple Sundays, through this Advent series, Pastor Steve has been unpacking for us the theological implications of all of this. By coming to earth and becoming a human being, Jesus was able to fulfill all of the Levitical laws of the Old Testament as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. He is not just any Passover lamb. He is the Lamb of God. And he did not shortcut the process by becoming a full-grown adult or becoming only partially a man. He fulfilled the law perfectly from his birth to his final breath. He lived a life we could not live, and he died the death we deserved to die. And this was an absolute necessity, right, we learned. This was the only way. Jesus is God's solution to man's problem, and that Solution required that he be both God and man, fully. And through the God-man on the cross, we see the coalescence of God's love and God's holiness. And by giving us his son, neither his mercy nor his justice were compromised. But as I said this morning, I want to go beyond the theology of the incarnation, that is God becoming a man. And I want to touch, but on an emotional and a relational level, Because we're not just spiritual beings. We are highly emotional creatures. Some of us maybe more than others. We are moved by and we act upon our emotions. That is literally what the word emotion means. To move, to be stirred, to agitate. And those emotions have a way of governing how we see ourselves and how we relate to others, not just how we act. And I think God knows this. And I believe that is why he explains to us how we are to think about not just what Christ has done, but who Christ is. And how we are to relate to God in light of the fact that in his son, he has fully assumed a human nature. Today's text comes from Hebrews 4. And we're just going to focus on three verses today. Uh, Before I read it, just a few background things that I want to highlight. One is the book, this book or this letter was written to Jews, just as the name Hebrews suggests. It was, but it was written to Christian Jews uh, in the first century who were under persecution for leaving their Jewish faith and embracing this new religion called the Way, right, or Christianity. And in their struggle, these same Christian Jews were were contemplating going back to their old religion of Judaism and back to the old ways. 
And so the first few chapters of Hebrews it has kind of this serious tone that's imploring the Jews to keep the faith and not capitulate back to their old life. So by the time we get to chapter 4, there is a bit of a climax building, and the tone is about to pivot here. The first three chapters of Hebrews unpacks the superiority of the Son of God over the angels in chapter 1 over the Old Testament priesthood in chapter 2, over the most revered figure in the Old Testament in Moses in chapter 3, and even over the Sabbath in the first part of chapter 4. In every way, the writer is demonstrating Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of all the laws and traditions they observed. You know, Leviticus is a very difficult book to read through, but if you can read it alongside Hebrews, it, it makes a lot more sense. But here in Hebrews 4, in the middle of chapter 4, it's as if the curtain is finally being opened and something glorious is about to be revealed. And it reads this in chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So in verse 14, the writer of Hebrews here tells these Jewish Christians, Hold on to your faith. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't go back to the old system. Why? Because Jesus is unique from all other priests we find in the Old Testament. He's not just the high priest. He is the great high priest. He is the priest to end all priests, literally, meaning the Old Testament priests are no longer needed because unlike the Old Testament priests who offered a sacrifice by entering into the Holy of Holies once a year, Jesus has offered him up himself as the perfect sacrifice and now sits in the presence of God the Father, not just the Holy of Holies. And he is at his right hand at this very moment. And in verse 15, here's what I think is the game changer. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have not sinned. And you know, I think this is an incredible verse because it captures the heart and the essence of the gospel. And, and I think it's one of the greatest revelations of the incarnation. Now, I intentionally chose the NIV translation of this text because it's the only English translation that I could find that translates Verse 15 as, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. You know, nearly every other translation of this verse uses the word sympathize instead of empathize. But, you know, in my humble opinion, I don't think sympathize captures the fullness of what is being described here. I think empathize actually does, as the NIV says. And I want to show you a brief video highlighting the difference between empathy and sympathy because I think it would be helpful in understanding these verses better. And before I do that, I, I do want to point out the caveat that this clip comes from a, a Brene Brown uh, TED Talk. 
Brown, uh, you may have heard of her. She's a very well-known professor who's done quite a bit of research on vulnerability and shame. And she often speaks about how her Christian faith informs much of her research. And that said, I'm not endorsing everything she says and writes because there are some things that I've read from her that I struggle with, frankly. But I do think there are some good things that we can learn from her research in general and from this video in particular. So if we can watch this. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, sandwich, huh? Uh, it's a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So empathy fuels connections because empathy is one of the most powerful expressions of love. Empathy requires me to choose to feel what you feel, to experience your emotional distress with you, not just next to you. you know, in the beginning of the video, Brown references the research of Teresa Weissman who says that true empathy is embodied by four basic qualities taking the perspective of the other person. Two, staying out of judgment. Three, recognizing emotion in, in the other person. And four, communicating that emotion back to them. And what struck me was when I, when I first saw this video years ago was how God perfectly embodies all of these qualities through the sending of his son. You know, taking the perspective of the other person. You know, I, 
I appreciate the animation paired with this talk because it gives us a visual picture, I think, of what true empathy looks like. Empathy is when you literally come down to where the other person is, no matter how horrible that place is, and you see things as they see them, not as you do. And Brown says empathy is like climbing down to where the other person is and saying, I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. I think that's such a picture of the incarnation. Emmanuel, the name of our church, literally means God with us. God with us. God with us. The gospel is not a story of God reaching down from heaven above. It is a story of God coming down and meeting us exactly where we are in our broken state. Taking the perspective of the other person. Two is staying out of judgment, she says. Staying out of judgment. You know, everyone knows the verse before John 3.17. Very few people know John 3.17 though, right? For God so loved the world, John 3.16. But what follows is this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Staying out of judgment. Jesus' purpose in being born a human was not to condemn the world, but to rescue it. But here's what's remarkable. He did not just stay out of judgment of us. He actually took our judgment for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Three, recognizing emotion in others, in um, stoicism, where we get the word stoic, someone who shows no emotion by repressing their feelings. The Gentiles believed that God could not understand the human experience because God was so far removed from it. He was not interested, nor could he be bothered with feeling anything towards his creation. God was apathetic to the plight of human beings, not sympathetic, Certainly not empathetic. Now contrast this with the God of the Bible. You know, prior to taking a break for Advent, uh, if you've been with us for longer than this month, we have been exploring the life of David. And I know it has been a transforming sermon series for me because I think David and the Psalms in particular reveals a God who is not distant, who is not aloof but a God who is near to us and safe enough for us to express our, our rawest emotions with him openly and honestly. You know, whether it's grief or anger, frustration or joy or sadness, God doesn't just recognize our emotions. He, he understands them uniquely. And everything that we feel, he invites us to express back to him. Recognizing emotion in others. And fourth, communicating that emotion back to them is uh, the last quality of empathy. Through the giving of his son, God has expressed his love, has he not? He has expressed his love to us in no uncertain terms. And this is why in his word, as I said, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. He is expressing his love through the gift of his son. You know, as many of you know, uh, a few weeks ago, 
George H.W. Bush, uh, the 41st president of the United States, he passed away, uh, I think November 30th. Uh, he was actually the president when I was in high school, and um, I didn't realize how little I knew about him until I watched his son, George W. Bush, the 43rd president, give his eulogy. And, you know, regardless of your political leanings or what you think of them as presidents, I, I would actually encourage you to watch that eulogy. I think it was a very moving tribute to a man who was not perfect, but who experienced and overcame much hardship in his life. And through watching this, you know, I learned that, that Bush had lost his daughter, Robin, their second child, pictured here with their oldest son, George W. Bush. They lost her to leukemia when she was only three years old. And that tragedy shaped much of who he was as a person and eventually as a president. And I came across a recent article from the Washington Post which went into detail about how George and his wife Barbara agonized over the death of their daughter and how it gave him an enduring empathy his whole life for others who had experienced loss. And I want to read just a portion of it for you. As Vice President, Bush once visited a children's leukemia ward in Krakow, Poland. Thirty-five years earlier, he and Barbara had lost a daughter, Robin, to the disease. And in Krakow, a small boy wanted to greet the American Vice President. Learning that the child was sick with the cancer that had taken his daughter, Robin, Bush began to cry. To his diary later that day, the vice president wrote this. My eyes flooded with tears. And behind me was a bank of television cameras. And I thought, I can't turn around. I can't dissolve because of personal tragedy in the face of these nurses that give of themselves every day. So I stood there looking at this little, little guy. Tears running down my cheek. Hoping he wouldn't see but if he did, hoping he'd feel that I loved him. You know, imagine the vice president at the time of one of the strongest nations of the that he carried the same illness that his daughter once had. And when I read that last line, you know, that through his tears, he was hoping that this child could feel his love for him. I, I just felt this, a small glimpse into the heart of God. A God who not only understands our pain, but feels our pain with us and grieves over it. A God whose great desire is that we know and understand, even in that pain, his great love for us. Brene Brown says that empathy fuels connection. Well, God in sending his son, I think, has done exactly that. He has fueled a connection with us. He has paved a way for us. He has built a bridge to us. And in Christ, we find a God who does not just understand human emotion. He entered into human experience. And not in a superficial way, in a supernatural way. Isaiah 53.3 says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. It's clear in the Bible that Jesus 
experienced all of the physical weaknesses and limitations that we all face as humans, and I would say, and, and, and more. He experienced hunger, thirst, fatigue, as we all have. But I, I've never fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in a wilderness. I have no idea what that feels like. But God does. He experienced pain, the pain of broken relationships in his humanity. I've, you know, I haven't been betrayed like Jesus has. Two of his closest friends, one who would sell him out for 30 pieces of silver and one who would deny it even knowing him as he goes to the cross. Christ knew that pain. He experienced intense emotional distress. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells his closest disciples that his soul was troubled and sorrowful to the point of death. So intense was his emotional struggle that it manifested itself physically, right? Through blood and sweat and tears, we're told. I've never experienced that kind of emotion. You know, I've experienced depression, but nothing like that. He experienced great loss. He experienced grief. You know, many scholars believe that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, died when Jesus was a child. In all likelihood, Jesus had to grow up quickly as a, in a single-parent home, and there's plenty of evidence that he grew up very poor. And Scripture tells us that when he, he got word that his bosom buddy and his cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded, in Matthew 14, it says that he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. This is a man who, who knew how to grieve. And then it tells us, yet when the crowds found him, he had compassion on them and he healed the sick. <laughs> who does that? Right? In their grief. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. And, you know, this, this is kind of strange to me because Jesus knew that Lazarus would be resurrected in a matter of days, but he did not restrain his sadness nor refrain from grieving with others in that moment. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced and he mourned with those who mourned. And he was the very embodiment of empathy. And Hebrews 4 tells us that in his humanity, Christ was tempted in every way. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that, even for myself, thinking of all the ways that I'm tempted. Like, he knows my temptations. He understands my struggle. Those temptations that we, years we are fighting, he has overcome. And many theologians even argue that the temptations that he endured were qualitatively different and exponentially more difficult than what we deal with because Jesus endured them to the very end and he was sinless. Whereas we often succumb to our temptations before prevailing, don't we? He wasn't just tempted in every way that we are tempted. He bore the full weight of every temptation. And God is not just telling us this so that we know that his son fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He's telling us this because he wants us to know that he is not just for us. God is with us. He does not just know us. He understands us. 
And his love is not only demonstrated by his sacrifice, but it is expressed through his empathy. Yeah, I, I feel like I talk about this all the time, but um, six years ago, when my wife Kim uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer, um, she had this rare form of lymphoma, and I was back in the hospital feeling utterly helpless, even more so this time. And, um, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know what to do, and so I did the only thing that I felt I could do. I asked anyone and everyone I, I could to pray for us. And um, early on when we found out, uh, I reached out to, by email to my old high school youth pastor, Kevin Scogan, and I showed this picture last week. He's the one in the middle there and the, with the white hair. And, um, you know, I, I asked him to follow our blog as we were posting prayer requests and just to pray for us. And um, uh, there's a pic of him and his wife, Dana, and his two sons when they visited us back in 2009. Um, with my boys, and by the time Kim got sick in 2012, you know, I, I hadn't talked to him in a, a few years, but I, I vaguely recall that his daughter-in-law, Lindsay, who was married to his oldest son, had lymphoma as well, and to be honest, I wasn't even sure when I reached out to him if she was still alive, because the last time I talked to Kevin, he seemed uncertain that she was going to make it, you know, her cancer kept returning despite multiple treatments, and, you know, by the grace of God, I found out when I reached out to him later that she was in remission. And at that point, I was, you know, I just found out my wife had cancer and I was desperate to talk to someone who could relate to our unique struggle. So I asked Kevin if Lindsay would be willing to share with us just about her cancer journey. And, and he emailed me back right away and he wrote this. He said, Peter, I've been reading and praying for you and Kim. And last night I shared what is going on with Lindsay, and she would love to contact you and Kim. It sounds very, very similar to Lindsay's cancer. She too had lymphoma. It was Hodgkin's. Kim and Lindsay sound very much alike, beautiful, brave, selfless, and most importantly, they know from whom their strength comes. My girl has been through it all, a number of times in fact. She has learned what only suffering can teach the depths of the love of Jesus. Please know, my brother, that Dana and I are with you before the throne of grace, and we will stay there as long as need be, Kevin. You know, we, we were so thankful for all the prayers and, and the support that we received from so many people during that season, but I have to tell you that the few folks who had walked through cancer before us their words, their prayers, their support, was, it, was, it was special. It's kind of like you enter into this family, you, don't, you want no part of being in, but once you enter, you're like, you want to know who your family is. Because hearing it with us, what was weighing on our hearts was weighing their hearts. And that empathy really ministered to us when we really needed it. And, you know, after, um, shortly after Lindsay wrote us, and, um, I'm going to read this email to you, and I want you to notice not only the Christ-like empathy that she conveys, but also the Christ-honoring empathy that she points us to. Uh, she said, Kim and Peter, my name is Lindsay. I married Kevin and Dana's son, Jacob. While you were still awaiting a final diagnosis, Kevin gave me your contact information as well as your blog. Since then, Jacob and I, as well as our oldest son, Joseph, have continually been praying for you 
and your children. In one of your posts, you mentioned how entering the cancer world puts you in special communion with others who have also walked that path. You are so right. And as we read each post, our hearts break knowing how hard the path is, how hard it is to be the patient, and how hard it is to be the spouse trying to keep the outside world spinning while still caring for your wife. We will continue to pray specifically for all the ups and downs that we so clearly remember. And we will join you in praising the Lord for the things he will allow Kim to forget, like the Rituxan experience. Some of my darkest memories include long, dark nights of excruciating head and jaw pain while getting Rituxan. I also did also want to let you know that so many of our prayers are for your children. When I went through all the treatments for my lymphoma, our son Joseph was very young, and I realized the difference it must be to have older, cognitive children who actually need explanations. And we pray that you will be equipped with the answers they need and that the Lord would use this to bless them as they watch their parents walk by faith through this valley. Scripture says it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. In our walk through cancer, we have seen this truth fleshed out. Looking back, we see how the refining furnace of cancer spiritually transformed not only Jacob and me, but our brothers, sisters, and many others who walked the valley with us. And, you know, this last part just really stayed with me, even to this day. And she said this, It is our prayer that the Lord's name would be glorified in you and through you as, your, as you follow your Savior into this trial. May you always remember that Christ knows very intimately the physical pain and spiritual strife he is asking you to pass through. We will remember you in prayer daily, dear brother and sister, and will bombard the throne of room of God with our prayers for you. Blessings. Lindsay Scogan. It still amazes me that through this woman I, I've never personally met, I felt so powerfully the love of Christ through her empathy for us. And not just her empathy for us, but also her reminder of Christ's empathy for us, who, as she so well stated, knows very intimately the physical pain and the spiritual strife he is asking you to pass through. You know, I'm convinced that empathy, true empathy can only come from a deeply rooted understanding and appreciation of the empathy of Christ. He is not only our great high priest, he is the greatest and the highest role model of empathy ever. So how are we to respond to all of this, to this revelation? Verse 16 tells us, because we have a great high priest who can empathize with our temptations, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, verse 14, as I read in the beginning, this whole section of this text begins with the word therefore because here the writer of Hebrews is, Hebrews is basically saying, this is, here's the culmination. This is what you need to know. Because we have a great high that he will receive us. His is not a throne of judgment. It is a throne of grace. Come in faith and receive the mercy and the grace of God who has become like you so that you might become like him.
You know, in closing, I want to say this. A few years ago, I, um, I attended a seminar for Christian counselors. And the speaker said that if he could distill the gospel into just two words, it would be God whispering this. Come closer. Come closer. And, you know, that, that struck me because the, the gospel is God's invitation for us to come closer to draw near to him. But the irony is that the only reason why we can come closer is because he has first drawn near to us. In the incarnation of Christ, God has come near and he is now inviting us to come closer. This is, this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is the love of God, experiment of empathy. Let's bow together. You know, the greatest proof, I think, of Christ's enduring empathy is not only found in what he has done for us on the cross, but what he is doing at this very moment at the right hand of God the Father. The Bible tells us that even now our great high priest is interceding on on our behalf, on your behalf. It's, It's pretty amazing if you think about it. Who else would you want praying for you and advocating for you than the one who understands your struggles, who knows your temptations, who has felt your pain and more than anyone else in the universe. This is our great high priest. And because he can empathize with us, we do not have to fear God even in our temptations, not even in our sin. In Christ, God is saying, come. Come to me. Come closer. Approach with confidence. I promise that you will receive grace and mercy. Come in faith. The empathy of Christ invites us into the presence of a holy God. And until Christ returns, God's throne is not one of judgment. It is a throne of grace. And we can come. We can come with confidence, not fear. We can come with boldness, not trepidation. We can come knowing that we will find mercy and grace, not when we deserve it most, but when we need it most. Let's take a moment and just reflect upon our need for God's mercy, our need for God's grace. Let's reflect upon the wonder and the beauty of the Son of God taking on flesh and bone now and forever for our sake so that we might know he receives us.